Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day 274. Which means we are about 12 weeks away from the end of this year's reading, which is crazy. Anyway, so that means 12 episodes of our beautiful voices and faces, even though you can't see us, uh, it's 12 more episodes and then we wrap up the year and we start a brand new year. So uh, we are thrilled that you're still part of the community with us. Thank you for being a part of it. If you have questions along the way, if you're a regular member, you understand, uh, please send us in those questions. Maybe this is your first time jumping in on the podcast with us. Thanks for joining. Uh, we would love to take time as much as we can week over week to answer the questions you, our dear listeners, send in. There's three ways to send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question or direct messages uh, on the on the social medias, on the Facebook. The and socials. On, the Insta. uh, on Instagram and Facebook, we have our handle is grovech. The Grove CH, and so you can DM us there as well. Uh, but we would love, like I said, to take time to answer those questions, and those are three ways to get us those questions. All right, I think this episode's going to be a longer one again, but you know what? <laughs> We're in the Gospels. I don't even care. We're going to spend some time talking about Jesus. It's going to be great. Uh, so the first up this week, we're going to start off in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and we see Jesus traveling to Jerusalem during one of the feasts. Uh, we're not told which one. So, but this doesn't would, matter. Yeah, this would be one of like the. It's a holiday essentially, right? Ooh. So it would be one of like it it's could like be, Christmas. Yeah, Just it kidding. could be the feast of the booths, for instance. Uh, I feel like if it was Passover, it would say Passover. So I don't think it's that one. But you know, who who knows? Maybe I'm completely wrong on that one. Uh, but there he goes by the pool of Bethesda. So before they were making Skyrim, Bethesda was a pool in Jerusalem. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> that's just, where the town in Maryland got the name. Stop. It's a yeah, you know, I'm playing Starfield. Anyway, so. There was a man there who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Uh, and I do think, you know, I, I've said, I say this all the time, but one of the things that we need to do when we read the Bible is take a moment to actually put ourselves into the lives of the people who are reading about. Yep. Imagine for a not moment. Not Jesus, though. Don't put yourself as Jesus, please. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to go well. But, and here's the thing. We oftentimes do that. I'm the hero of the story. I need to be like Jesus. So I no, you are not the hero of the story. Jesus is. You are the people Jesus is meeting and reaching. So yeah. quick little side note, soapbox, whatever you want to call it. In the story of the Bible, we are the princess being rescued by the <laughs> yes. knight. We are not the knight. Always and forever, 100%. Um, but um, imagine for a moment being paralyzed for 38 years. Imagine what your life would be like. This This man is spending, it seems like every day at the pool of Bethesda in the hopes of possibly being healed and it's just not happening. What would happen is people, when the pool would begin to bubble up, people would go inside. And the idea was that it was angel stirring is kind of what the, the superstition seemed to have been. And then healings would happen. So this guy's there. Uh, Jesus asks him kind of an odd question. He asks the man if he wants to be healed, which you, <laughs> I don't know if I was paralyzed and like sitting by a pool for all those years, it would be a really weird question to ask, but it seems like there was something there that, that needed to be answered for the man. Jesus then heals the man who takes up his bed and walks away. 
The Pharisees then tell him that this is unlawful. It is unlawful to carry his bed on the Sabbath because the Pharisees are just the worst sometimes. And this shows the heart behind the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees have added on oral tradition that expands on the rules of the old covenant. So Jesus is talking about scripture and he's God incarnate. So he knows what he meant when he inspired scripture. And the Pharisees are talking about all of this oral tradition that's come after the fact. And it, it, if, you, if you want a good time, listeners, look up just all of the rules of the Sabbath that the Pharisees had during this time. Like some of them are insane. There's like certain distances you can walk. There's a certain amount of weight that you can carry. It, it's this whole thing. And so John gives us some commentary on their motives. And then he shares this important statement or some important statements of Christ. So this is John chapter 8, 5, verse 8, verses 18 through 22. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise, that that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to all whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. So John, and it's funny because between all the gospels, John is the one that is most explicitly saying like, hey, in case you're not getting this, Jesus is God. And it makes sense, right? Because the gospel of John is written it seemingly is written much later than the synoptic gospels. We we probably date the synoptic gospels in the 40s and 50s. Maybe the 60s is kind of as far as they go. The gospel of John is probably written towards the end of his life. So this would be in the 80s or 90s is, is when it's written. So uh, almost a generation after the other gospels. And this would be when the Gnostics are rising up. And if, if you don't know what the Gnostics are, uh, we're not going to talk about them a ton in, biblically, but it's it's kind of when we get into some of the epistles it becomes important to kind of talk about them because there was heresies that were rising up. And this is why the apostles are writing letters to churches because they're trying to rebuke these heresies. The big one is the Judaizers and we'll talk about them, but their their statement was that you had to be Jewish first in order to become a Christian. Whereas Paul would argue, and I would say that, that Christ would argue that, no, this is a new covenant that's been ushered in. You don't have to be culturally Jewish in order to be a Christian. Uh, but another famous heresy that was happening at this point is this idea that Jesus was just a man and that he was, or or an angel, or that he was a spiritual being, but he wasn't God in the flesh. And so it makes sense that as John is writing his gospel, he's reinforcing to the people like, no, like this is clearly what Jesus is claiming, where the other three gospel writers are kind of taking it for granted a little bit in the moment because that wasn't the issue of the day necessarily. Uh, as chapter five continues, Jesus also puts forward different witnesses for his identity he talks about how John the Baptist is a witness for him. So Jesus is not just on his own claiming to be who he is. John the Baptist is confirming this. And he also says scripture. He makes it clear that the Old Testament in its entirety is pointing towards his ministry, that what Jesus is doing right now is the climax of the biblical story. And it's the culmination of everything that's been put down in the Old Testament. Uh, So to continue on with the theme of the Sabbath, we're going to move over to Mark chapter two, and we get the same story from the point of view of all the synoptic gospels. I guess I should explain, re-explain synoptics in case you're joining us here for the first time, or or if you forgot, that's fine too. Uh, The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're the three gospels that are very similar. John is kind of its own thing standing off in the corner. It's telling mostly different stories, and it's, it's written in a very different style. 
The synoptics seems seems like they used one another as sources. So prop, the, the way it's usually put forward is Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source and then also gathered stories in their own way and then put forward their gospels. But because of that, they're telling a lot of the same stories just from different perspectives. So those are the synoptic gospels. Uh, so we're just going to go ahead and read this whole passage here in Mark chapter 22 verses Sorry, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. It says, One Sabbath, he, and this being Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." So it's funny how this is kind of the main fight (laughs) that the Pharisees and Jesus have. Um, Eventually it gets into other things, but it seems like the Sabbath more than any other command was really becoming a stumbling block for many of the Pharisees because of the oral traditions that rose up after it. Because what, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, you will do no work and you'll essentially reflect on on who God is. You'll reflect on what he has done. And the Pharisees take that and they add in all these extra rules. Okay, well, here's exactly what work looks like. Here's exactly what you can and you cannot do. Here's exactly how you're going to work. Like all of these different things that were never actually in scripture. They were never actually a part of God's command. But because, and and we talked about this a little bit last week, because the Pharisees are giving equal weight to this oral tradition as they are to their scripture, it's blasphemous for them that Jesus is kind of rebuking some of that teaching. So it's it's, it's really interesting that we see this. Uh, Matthew shares the same story, but he adds some extra context. So this is in Matthew chapter 12. First, Jesus makes the point that within the law, priests are commanded to do work on the Sabbath, carrying out their duties. I never... I never caught this before reading. So this is one of those fun things that like I'm kind of seeing this for the first time. Jesus' point is that on the Sabbath, priests have to work. But they but they're not sinning. So even within the law, God is making exceptions for people to be able to do things on the Sabbath. So his point is that it's not as rigid as the Pharisees are making it out to be, because otherwise the priests wouldn't even be able to offer sacrifices and all these different things. Secondly, Jesus makes the point that something greater than the temple has arrived. And hey, listener, take a guess at what he's talking about. So he's talking about himself. Uh, Jesus is the greater temple, and he's trying to show the Pharisees that they're they're missing it by by not recognizing that. Uh, and then the Luke passage, uh, I just put it's very similar to Mark. So you, when you read that, there's not really significant differences between the Luke and Mark passage. Uh, moving forward in Mark chapter three, we get a story of a man with a withered hand. Essentially what this means is just kind of a, a, a crippled hand that can't be moved anymore. It's it's um, it's locked in place. You, you can see this sometime even today with some older people, usually is when it happens. And so we'll read that, yeah which we'll read because the hearts of the Pharisees are on display uh, as well as some likely alliances being formed. So here's the story. Once again, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? 
but they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved in their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Uh, I say that there because the Pharisees and the Herodians, and this is probably referring to the Sadducees, but it could just be like a, literally the um, like the royal family as well of, of, of Herod. They are not natural friends. <laughs> so it, we read these we read these gospel accounts and sometimes we think all these people are on the same side and then Jesus arrived and they conspired to, to kill him. No, all these groups are fighting and then Jesus arrives and then they're all on the same side. Jesus is the enemy of every single type of person right now because he's bringing the truth. He's bringing the gospel and so many people aren't ready for it. I also love that Jesus kind of calls them out on, because it's a really important question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And it bring it brings to mind this idea of, yeah, if you passed by a man who was if you if you are on the Sabbath and you see someone in front of your home break with broken legs and they need to be taken to a doctor, would you not go help them? If 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 raiders came in and began to invade your city, would you just lay down your life and say like, "Well, no, I can't do anything on the Sabbath." Like Jesus is poking holes in the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in this moment because there are for sure some things that they are willing to do on the Sabbath that even break their own oral tradition, but they're not willing to see this man be healed. Which is which is which is, when when you put it in that context, you see how wicked it, it truly is. Uh, the Matthew account of this story adds how Jesus communicated his question to what is lawful on the Sabbath. So he actually uses uh, an example. He says that men there wouldn't hesitate to rescue one of their sheep on the so if they were walking and they saw a sheep in a ditch, and it was the Sabbath, they wouldn't hesitate to go down, grab the sheep, and bring it up out of the ditch because it's valuable to them. And he says, how much more valuable is this man than a sheep? Uh, and I can't help but think of Jonah when we read through that. When Jonah, at the very end of the story, he has the plant that grows up over him and the plant dies. And God's whole rebuke to Jonah at the end is, you care more about this plant than you do the people of Nineveh. Like the, And he's saying the people of Nineveh are more valuable than this plant. And Jesus is saying, you care more about your sheep than you do about this man. And this man is more valuable than the sheep. Um, and we'll talk about this here in a little bit when we get to the Sermon on the Mount as well, because Jesus, spoil, not spoilers, a tease. Uh, Luke chapter six uh, also adds the context that Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees as they were trying to trap him. So it's not just that Jesus is like intuiting that this is going to happen. Jesus can straight, straight up knows what they're thinking and he's going to reverse trap. He's going to throw down his reverse card if we're playing Uno. Reverse, right? reverse. I hate that song. I don't hate the song. I hate dancing. <laughs> okay, listen, issue. I'm going to be totally transparent for a second. I have songs flooding through my head every uh, through the entire time you've been talking so far. Even at the opening, I still go back to the Fresh Prince of Bel Air vibe. Um, in, in, like, yeah. So I just got songs popping through my head. Hey, so no worries. That's probably why I'm more quiet because I don't because <laughs> I have these songs right now. Listeners, Aaron has a song in his heart, and there's nothing wrong with that. And in my head. There you go. Uh, this next section is unique to Matthew, so we don't see this in the other synoptic Gospels. Uh, here, Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is... Sorry, I should say what section we're in. Chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Uh, in this section, Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is fulfilling some of the messianic prophecies of Isaiah, specifically the ones about bringing justice to the Gentiles. And this is the type of thing that we would expect to be unique to Matthew, because again, Matthew's thing, main thing that he's writing towards is a Jewish audience convincing them that Jesus is the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament and that he is the greatest Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. And therefore, he's going to always kind of pull back to, no, this is, what, this is why Jesus did what he did to fulfill this exact prophecy. Uh, shifting back to Mark, so we're going into chapter 3. 
verses 7 through 19, uh, we see Jesus having to full-on retreat from crowds at times, which is pretty nuts. Uh, and there's actually a fear, a fear that he could be crushed. So the people are so desperately trying to get close to Jesus that the, the worry is that essentially they're going to trample him because of that. Uh, and so he has the disciples grab a boat and essentially, hey, have a boat ready. We're just going to get in. We're going to go to the other side. It's, it's going to be awesome. Uh, after this, we see Jesus call out his famous 12 disciples. Uh, this is another thing. I, it's funny. Growing up, I thought that there was Jesus and he had his 12 disciples and that was the crew. This is not the case. The 12 disciples are are specifically chosen out of a group of his disciples that are already there. So there's sometimes we have this mistaken picture of Jesus as he's just traveling around with these 12 guys and, and no one else is around. No, there's a bunch of people around. Um, the reason we know this is that when, spoiler alert, Judas doesn't get to be a disciple forever. So he does, you know, he when he betrays Jesus, he's he's lost his card. Also, when he kills himself, both of those things kind of make him lose his disciple card. Um, and so when they choose Matthias to replace Judas in the book of Acts, one of the requirements between the men that they were picking between is that they had to be disciples who were with Jesus during the whole of his ministry. Or in other words, that means when the 12 disciples were chosen, they had to have been there in that moment. So Matthias is present when this is happening. He's just not chosen to be one of the initial 12. Uh, And then the 12 are Simon, uh, also more famously Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Andrew, who is Peter's brother, Philip, uh, Bartholomew is what he's called in Mark. This is also Nathaniel in John, Uh, Matthew, who is also called Levi, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. So there's two James. Uh, Thaddeus, otherwise known as Judas, the son of James. So there's also two Judases. We don't remember that one as much. And I don't, you know, I don't blame good old Thaddeus for switching it up to going by a Greek name after, after all of that went down. Uh, Simon, the zealot. So there's three, there's two Simons, two Jameses, two Judases. And the final disciple is Judas Iscariot. And all of the gospel accounts kind of spoil it, which is funny. They're all just like Judas Iscariot who was a traitor or Judas Iscariot who would betray Jesus. So we're not, we're not keeping that a secret. And I guess it also does show the important point that the early gospel writers are assuming that most people know the basics of the story at this point, which is an interesting assumption. So you can see that even before the gospels are written down, the story of Christ is already a famous one that people are aware of. Uh, and then Luke t- chapter six, verses 12 through 16 is mostly the same as the Mark passage. Uh, in Matthew chapter five, this is where I'm going to be spending the bulk of of my time this week. It's the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to Woo-hoo. go back and forth. Yeah, this is this is great. I love I love the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so we're going to go back and forth between Luke and Matthew, mostly in Matthew. There's a few things in Luke that are that are unique. But this is Jesus. He's on top of a mountain. He's preaching to the crowds, and he's just going to give one of the most famous sermons of all time. So first up, the Beatitudes, and I'm just going to read these. This is Matthew chapter five, starting in verse two. It says, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who other when, sorry, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad 
for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you, who were before you. So, I mean, yeah, the bombers, we can't spend like a ton of time on all this because we have like, we have no, we can't. I know. Listen, there's an entire commentary that I read a couple of years ago that was just on the Sermon on the Mount. Really? Yeah, wow. Just yeah. incredible. Like, I believe so it. It's one of my favorite. It's probably one of my favorite passages of, of scripture. I have to, yeah, I'll have to get that commentary from you. No. Let me know what it is. It's, not, I, not it's a digital it. copy. Oh, gross. I mean, I'm not borrowing yours. Just I want to buy my own, I yeah. suppose. Anyway, um, so I guess for the listeners, you remember the name of the commentary? It's the preaching the word one that I use. And it's just on the Sermon on the Mount? They have the Sermon on the Mount really? specifically. Okay. Yep. Yeah, listeners, if you it's want- It's pretty legit. If you want good commentaries, preaching the word, they have some really cool ones. Um, so Luke chapter six, verses 17 through 26, it repeats some of the Beatitudes, not all of them, but, in, but it also adds in this section of woes that Jesus pronounced. And he says, so this is verse verses 24 through 26, but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So that last line is, is this, it's not the same, but it's the same idea in both Matthew and Luke where <laughs> essentially don't be, if, if everyone, if everyone's loving you, just remember everyone loved the false prophets. Like think back to Jeremiah <laughs> yep. when Jeremiah is telling everyone, Hey, get ready. The Babylonians are going to take over. This is it. Don't resist. And all the false prophets like, no, God's got our back. It's going to be awesome. Everyone loved the false prophets and everyone died because they loved the false prophets. So not, not great. And then we also, yeah, that Luke passage is also just interesting because it's kind of the anti-beatitudes. It's the opposites of what Jesus, not the opposite. It's the flip side of the coin of what Jesus is declaring. Uh, jumping back into Matthew, he then began to speaks about he, he then begins to speak about a few different subjects. Uh, Jesus tells the crowd that they are salt and light, and that they are essentially what this means is they're a benefit to the world, right? You don't want you don't want to live in darkness. <clears throat> and you also don't want to eat unseasoned food unless you're a psychopath. You know, even salt is a, it's, it's a basic thing, but it's going to make food better. And that way, when we bring the message of the kingdom of God here on earth, when we bring the message of the gospel, we are salt and light to the world. Uh, next, Jesus makes it clear that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather as a fulfillment of them. So, and, and sometimes we miss, we mess this up today a little bit where we can get with the old Testament and instead of looking at it and reading it and saying, oh, how does Jesus fulfill this? We're just kind of like, oh, cool. This doesn't matter one bit. And we just kind of toss it to the side. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the law may not apply to us in, as Christians in the sense of it's binding moral law for us. Um, but it's, that doesn't mean we just throw it away. We can look at it and we can see how Jesus has fulfilled the law and prophets. Uh, the next section begins a long part of the sermon containing the, you have heard it said, but I say statement. So this is where Jesus is going to say a bunch of these. You have heard it said blank, but I say blank. And we can kind of see the, the points that Jesus is getting across here. Uh, the first one is you have had, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I say, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, do not be angry with your brother. And what Jesus is getting, and there's going to be a few sins. Actually, I'm going to go through all of these different types of sins, and then we'll talk about it here in a second. And when I say all these different ones, it's really just two. But the second one is, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Uh, but I say, do not lust. Or I think what Jesus actually said, the, the exact thing that Jesus says is whoever looks, uh, whatever man looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart has committed adultery in his heart. So those two statements, what Jesus is getting at is that sin is not just the things that we do. 
it's it's kind of a part of us. So obviously, murder, sin. We all agree on that. You don't want you don't want to murder. Um, but being angry enough in your heart to murder, even if you don't, is a sin. Um, being angry and holding a grudge and not passing along the forgiveness that God has given us to others. What Jesus is saying is that that is just a, that, that it, it's a sin. It's not necessarily equal <laughs> with murder, but the idea would be it shows our sinfulness in the same way, right? Like committing adultery, you don't want to do that. Don't cheat on your wife. Um, but a lustful heart is also sin. It's also showing uh, the brokenness that we have in our hearts because of sin. It, it just reminds me of, uh, obviously, I, I just bring things back to Job sometimes because that's just what I do. But uh, Job shows in, in, in throughout all the speeches a really advanced understanding of sin because when all of his friends are saying, you must have done this, you must have done this, um, Job is responding with saying, not even in my heart. Did I do these things? So, so Job understands in that moment that sin is not just the actions that we do. It's also a, a matter of the heart as well. Uh, another thing that Jesus says is, you have heard it said, uh, when you divorce your wife, you must give her a certificate of divorce, which I guess that's a really lame award, but there you go. Uh, but Jesus says, but I say, do not divorce your wife except on grounds of sexual immorality. Uh, this is another thing where the Pharisees kind of went off, went out of left field here, where there's fa- like famously, if your wife burned your food a few times, you could just, you know what, you know what, hon? This isn't working. No out. husband for you. <laughs> yeah, no husband for you. Straight to jail. Um, but it's, it, and so what Jesus is saying is like, no, like this is not taking marriage seriously. And so he gives this caveat of sexual immorality, which, it, which essentially would mean adultery. Um, but if that's not happening, no, you don't just you don't just get to give your wife a certificate of divorce and and send her away. So not not great. Uh, the next one is you have heard it said, do not break an oath. But I say, don't make oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Or in other words, as Christians, like and, and this is a, I think this is a really important thing for us today because how often do we actually live like this? Uh, you don't need to say I promise. Not saying it's like evil necessarily, but if you say you're going to do something. Do it. Just do it. Yeah. If you're saying that's called not, integrity. Like, so someone shouldn't have to say like when when I say I'm going to do something, someone shouldn't have to say you promise or like make or straight up just make me swear an oath. No, they should know. Oh, Evan has high character. When he says he's going to do something, he's going to do something. That's the way that we need to live. From uh, now on, if someone asks me, especially my kids, if you're listening, uh, do you promise? I'm like, have I ever lied? Have I ever cheated you out of this? Have I ever not done what I said I was going to do? The just, response will be like, sometimes. Just but. give Gideon the backhand and be like, hey, do not make an oath. <laughs> and then you have to apologize for hitting your son. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, anyway. I, for clarity, I don't hit my son. Good but. job. Uh, neither do I. Granted, my son's three months. So you better that not be, hit him. Be really bad. I mean, it's always bad to hit your kids. I don't know. This is a weird Discipline spanking. There but. you go. I mean, that's fair. Okay. Uh, back to normal things. <laughs> so <laughs> Back the, to scripture. Back to scripture. Uh, you have heard it said. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And, Je- and again, this is paraphrasing, but Jesus is, is uh, turn the other cheek. When someone strikes you, turn your cheek and let them strike the other side. And he goes through a, more, a few different examples there. So you're saying after I hit Gideon, I smack him in the mouth, he should turn his face to me. Exactly. That's the biblical response. Exactly. Or I'm after, totally kidding. I shouldn't even joke about that. Or after but, Gideon wakes you up from a nap by slapping you in the face. I should give my other cheek. Don't be mad. Offer him the other cheek. Thanks, son. Here's the other side. <laughs> Thanks, son. I was sleeping in a little bit too late there. Uh, the next one is, sorry, I, 
I should talk about this for a second before we move on. So yeah, the idea there is we shouldn't be going around seeking revenge, right? Like we, like we should be willing to suffer for the gospel. Um, this doesn't mean like, and sometimes this can get interpreted to mean like just let bad things happen to other people. I don't think that's what is what Christ is getting at here. That is an interpretation you could take, but I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. I think the yeah. point is be willing, um, show radical forgiveness to other people. Be willing to be willing to take it being be willing to be taken advantage of sometimes for the good of the gospel. And I think that's one of those things that sometimes we'll we'll hear people like I'll, and and this is an instinct that we all have, right? Like, oh, I'm just so like I'm just so done with this person like there's taking like whatever it is. It's like I mean, sometimes sometimes you do need to just kind of like cut people out of your life, but sometimes it's like yeah, like sometimes things are just bad for you, but it's a way to be able to show people who Christ is. Speaking as a true Mariners fan, as a yeah, the Mariners and a Seahawks fan. What was the the joke? Is always uh, when I die, I just want the Mariner, like some of the players from the team, to lower my coffin into the ground so they can let me down one last time. <laughs> like it would just be just be poetic. That's awesome. I hope hopefully I've by not the, heard that before. Really? Oh yeah. We're recording this on a Thursday, and all of my hopes are dead. So hopefully, when this comes out on a Sunday, the Mariners just won like three in a row, and they're about to win again. They'll go to the playoffs. But I doubt it, listeners. I doubt it. Um, the last one is Jesus says, "You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you." Um, this is incredibly powerful advice. My dad told me something similar to it. I remember when I was a kid and it always changed. It it, it, it changed the way I looked at people. Uh, but what he said was, it's really hard to be mad at people you're praying for. So like if you're- Thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, but yeah, if you're mad at someone, if you're praying for them, it's really hard to continually hold a grudge. And so I've tried to do that in my life where when I have strife with people, it's adding, adding them to my prayer list and I'm making sure I'm praying for them every day. Um, when there's people who are causing hurt to my friends or whatever it might be, am I, am I praying for them? It's, it's incredible advice. And, and again, it's, it's radical that Jesus would say this. And I don't mean in the 70s sense, I mean, or 80s, I don't know when radical was popular, but I mean, it's a crazy departure from what we would normally think, but it's an important reminder for us that we have been given radical forgiveness as Christians. Uh, we should be, we have, we act like enemies of God all the time, but God loves us and he intercedes for us and he makes a way because God does that for us. We are commanded to do that for our enemies as well. We love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute you. We're not looking for revenge. We're not looking to hate them. So uh, Sermon on the Mount, incredibly popular. Uh, Luke omits most of this section. He does, however, focus on the loving your enemies section. So I'm just going to read that in its entirety here. Uh, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do go do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give everyone who begs who begs from you and fr- give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you, sorry, if you love those who love you, and this is the section I really wanted to focus in on because I think this is a great point. If you love those who love you, what benefit benefit is that to you? 
For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Um, I just love the picture of, yeah, you're nice to people who are nice to you. You know who else is? Everybody. <laughs> like it's it's a very universal thing. I shouldn't say very, you know, there are some people who aren't that way, but for the most part, it's very easy to be nice to people who are nice to you. It's very easy to be nice to people who benefit you. It's very nice when someone, if you know someone's good for the money and they're going to give you it back with some interest, it's very easy to lend money to those people. What Jesus is saying is that's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to love people who are hard to love. Um, he's calling us to love people in ways that are, that is difficult where we're not going to get everything back. We're, we're called to give without expecting back. And, and that's what Jesus is getting at. So I, I love the call to just radical living that Jesus gives here. Uh, the next warning that Jesus gives is practicing the uh, practicing righteousness for the purpose of being seen by others. I, I love his statement. He, it's essentially that, yeah, when you do that and you're praised, your reward is right there. That's it. Uh, so I think, you know, it's, it's, are we doing good things to be noticed, like when we're out doing good things or posting it to social media because we want people to see us and praise us and think about how great we are, or are we trying to do righteousness? Are we trying to do good things because we want to glorify God, because we want to show God's love that he's given to us, to others? After this, Jesus gives us another incredibly famous passage, a model on how to praise. This is where we get the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Famously, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I almost went King James there for a second. Uh, But your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Fun fact, the last part is not actually in the original the original biblical copies that we have, the the whole for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Not bad. I don't think that's a bad way to end a prayer, but it's kind of interesting that's not in there. Uh, and so think about the different principles in this prayer. So, because I think sometimes we can, and there's nothing w- wrong with repeating it. If like you're th- meditating on the words and thinking about what they mean and repeating it, I think it's a beautiful prayer. Uh, but I think what it's getting at also is think about what the different aspects of this prayer are. And, and when we pray, are we doing all of these things? I think one of the traps that we can fall into, particularly in just in this kind of our culture of Christianity is when we pray, is it just like basically bringing a Christmas list to Santa and hoping that God's going to check things off the list of here's what I want and here's what I want and here's what I want. Amen. Or are we actually doing all these things that Jesus is modeling? Uh, so number one, are we praising God for who he is and declaring that his name is holy? That's our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I keep going back to King James because it's so freaking catchy. You can't not do King James in the Lord's prayer. Um, but yeah, when we pray, are we taking a moment just to thank God for what he's done in our lives, to thank God for who he is, to praise him for who he is, to declare that he is holy and that he is above everything else. Uh, the next one is, are we asking for God's will to be done here on earth? Or are we asking for our will? When it says your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What that's saying is, God, what I want is what you want. I want your kingdom here on earth. I want your will to be done. How can I help accomplish that? When we ask for provision, and then after that, there's a moment where we can ask for provision. Notice it's not extravagant. Like daily bread is not like, God, I want vast riches. It's saying, God, please give me what I need to survive. Give me enough 
to make it? What What is your daily bread? And and sometimes we can get trapped in this. And I, I'm just as guilty as the next person where I'm just thinking about the future and I'm thinking about all these different things I need. And really what I need to be asking for is like, God, just give me what I need right now. Like sus- sustain me, help, help me through those things. Uh, next part is a confession of sin and reinforcement that we must pass along forgiveness that we have received. Uh, so the other way to say is forgive those who trespass uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or in other words, God, here's how I've sinned. Forgive me for that in the same way that I am going to forgive people who sin against me. And this is, again, speaking of traps you fall into, and I've been saying this a billion times, so I don't need to belabor the point, but when God gives us forgiveness, it is wicked for us to accept that forgiveness and not pass it along to others. So notice how those things are connected. We're, we're asking God to forgive us of our sins, and reinforcing that we will forgive when we are sinned against. Uh, and then the final thing is just praying for protection like, from temptation and evil. So like praying to God to help protect us from temptation, whatever that may look like, and to protect us from evil as well. So I think it's just a good model. When I pray, uh, it's usually not word for word reciting the Lord's Prayer, but I do have this checklist in my head of like, am I doing all of these things? Am I making sure that... Um, that I'm bringing these things before the Lord. And I, I, this year I've really been trying to focus on like, okay, how can I improve my prayer life? Because it has been a, um, I, I very easily can fall into the traps where I'm just doing one of these things on the list and not, and not really focusing on the rest of it. So having a, a healthy, vibrant prayer life with the Lord is incredibly important. Uh, the next point that God, Jesus makes is to not make a show of it when we fast. And so let that be between you and God. Uh, the example he gives is basically anoint your head with oil, like go around looking like normal. Uh, for us today, that wouldn't be the advice because obviously if I, when I was fasting, if I just anointed my head with oil, that would be the opposite because everyone would look at me and be like, oh, that guy looks kind of weird. Uh, but for us today, right, it's not making a show when we fast. It's not like posting it up. It's not posting about it to social media. It's not letting every single person know like, hey, I'm fasting right now. Watch out. It's literally just letting that be between you and the Lord. Uh, after that, we get the famous ref- – or sorry, after the famous refrain about storing up treasures in heaven uh, – it's a reminder that we cannot serve both God and money. Sorry, I wrote that sentence wrong in my notes. Um, Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and wrath, moth and rust do moth not destroy. Moth and wrath uh, do not destroy uh, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So there you go. And it's just a, it's a reminder that when he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think it's a good it's – it's always one of the convicting things of um, – I, I remember I had a pastor who the way he would say it is like, you know, if we looked at your bank statement, like what would that what would that say about what you love? <laughs> like, and so uh, are we carving out uh, and this isn't to say like 100 percent or whatever it is, but are we carving out parts of our income to further the kingdom of God here on earth? Or is all of our uh, is all of our riches, is all of our material wealth going just towards us and not being given to others and not helping others? Uh, and then this is another thing I, I kind of noticed the last time I read through Matthew, but the connecting point is that we should not be anxious. So there's this famous passage where Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Uh, one of the, my favorite things that Pastor Nick says is anytime you see a therefore, you need to ask what's the therefore, therefore, or in other words, what came right before it. And so it is. it's, it's important to note that Jesus is talking about Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Uh, do not do not be selfish with your money. And then 
don't be, but also don't be anxious about your life. So in other words, when, as we're living this way, uh, trust in the Lord to maintain us, trust in the Lord to give us what we need to make it. Uh, and as he continues on, this is what I was talking about earlier. He says, look at the birds of the air. Thy neither, they neither soar nor reap, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So again, it kind of harkens back to the man with the withered head, hand saying he's more valuable than the sheep. He's looking at this crowd and saying, look how God takes care of the birds. Are you not more valuable than the birds? As he continues on, he says, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? I feel personally a little attacked by that statement, but okay. Uh, and you, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For all the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Pet peeve. Uh, this verse gets used a lot in the, the completely wrong context because we just ignore like everything that came before it. And it's like, uh, there's, I don't know, there's like certain church cultures where it gets used as like the tithe and offerings first. And it's like, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, like everything you've ever dreamed. You get a car. Like that is not what this is. It's literally God saying food, clothing, shelter, the basic necessities of life. Seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added on to you. It is not talking about like your wildest dreams of riches. That is the wrong way to interpret this verse. So don't just, don't just pluck this out of, of and I, I would actually say them. I think the majority of churches use this scripture within context, but there are True. very well, like very highly publicized churches that sometimes manipulate this scripture for sure. Yeah. So, but I would say, I would say the majority of churches, I think, I think one of the things that we got, this is a total random rabbit trail, but I think one of the things we got to be careful with in general is we see mainstream or we see TV driven ministries that are taking scriptures out of context and making them this, this massive uh, false reality. Um, and in, in the Christian circle, we attribute most churches are that way. And I think it's actually the opposite. I think most, most churches honor scripture, steward scripture well, but I think these, the, the, the mainstream media public publicizing, publicizing within the Christian world is what I'm referring to. Like that, that mainstream media within Christian context is what broadcasts this out. And so there are very big churches and there are churches that take the scripture out of context, but I think the majority of churches actually in pastors steward scripture. Well, they're just not very well known or very publicly seen. So, yeah, I think, uh, so it's one of those things to be careful with. I think for all of us as followers of Christ to not stereotype or lump everybody in with this, this little, Diddy of everybody does it. Jeff Foxworthy, I think, said it the best, which is a weird statement to say, but he said, uh, Christians and people from the South have the same problem where most of us are very intelligent and well-reasoned people, but we can't keep the worst among us off of TV. <laughs> so it's like, that's just kind of the way it goes. That uh, was a very weird segue, but yeah, it fit perfectly. Good old Jeff. Uh, all right. So this next section shows Jesus telling the crowds not to judge others unless they want to be judged. The example here is the, you know, don't. Look Unless at, they who are judging want to be judged, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. exactly. Oh, the, way, the way it was phrased first, I was like, well, maybe they want to be judged. Okay, I'll judge them. Like, maybe no, I want to be not, judged. That's yeah. not what happened with me. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, basically the point is like, it would be ridiculous if I was like, Aaron, dude, you got a speck of dust in your eye. Meanwhile, I have a giant plank. Can you get it out for me, Evan? <laughs> coming out of my own. So he's saying like, hey, like, 
uh, and I, I, I think this is the Christian, this is the Christian heart, right? We're not judging other people for their sin because we're all sinners. That's like the, the, the hope of Christianity is not, Hey, I'm, I've achieved perfection here on earth. Be like me. The hope of Christianity is my sins have been forgiven by God and God can forgive your sins yep. too. Uh, Luke chapter six, verses 37 through 42, uh, records this same judge, not section. Going back to Matthew, uh, we have a couple other points from Jesus. These include that God wants to give good things to his children. Yay. Uh, here, I love the example of if your son asks for a gift, he's, are you going to give him a serpent? And I was like, I just, no, I would not. Like Joel, Unless the gift he wants is a serpent. Yeah, but. I guess that. No, even then. We, me, and Ash, <laughs> me and Ashley have talked about there's two pets that if Joel's like, because I think pets are good. Like, you know, they teach kids responsibility. Sure. Um, I, I, I'm not saying like, you know, that's not a universal idea. But uh, snakes and tarantulas, those are the two like, hey, no. Like we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna land on. Like if you want to, like I could see tarantulas. Does she not like snakes? Is that uh, she is? doesn't like snakes. Yeah. I don't either. super care about snakes. It's you what don't like it's spiders. What, tarantulas. There's no way. Yeah, because if that thing gets out, dude, I mean, <laughs> dude, that's just that's just the worst. I'm like, laughing because no, I know Evan's fear of, sna- of spiders. Oh, there's like there is nothing worse that could happen. That that's not that's a stretch. There is no worse animal that could get loose in a house than a tarantula. A realistic animal, I guess I should say. Like obviously, if a bear is in the house, it's worse, but not by much. Anyway, at sorry. least you know where it is. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he also brings up the golden rule. This is very famous: do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or in other words, treat people the way you want to be treated. That's a very it's. I love it because it's so simple and it's so true. Uh, when we're thinking of the ways that we're treating people, we need to be thinking, well, how would I want to be treated in a similar situation? Um, it's it's just an important thing. And then finally, you can judge a tree by its fruit. So in other words, you can the 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 fruit that someone bears, and I guess that's very Christianese, right? The we can tell by the actions that someone takes and the the character of their lives what is in their heart. Um, so it's not saying that we're saved by what we do, but it is It is saying that what we do is evidence of what's inside. Just like if someone was showing me their apple tree and there was a bunch of oranges on it, they wouldn't be like, oh yeah, this is an apple tree, but for some reason it's fruit is this. I, I would be like, no, dude, it's an orange tree. Like, why are you trying to lie to me right now? It's the same thing of if we're saying we're Christians, it's but a, our- an apple tree, okay? Sorry. Uh, it's the same thing if we're saying we're Christians, but our fruit is decidedly non-Christian. That's probably evidence that- we're not Christians, right? Uh, and Luke shares the the tree and fruit story as well. Uh, next up, we get possibly the scariest verse in the Bible, and I'm going to read a, a I'm going to read a, a longer section. So we'll talk about a few different points in here. Uh, but it starts off with the terrifying: Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works, many mighty works in your name?" And I will declare to them, "I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock, on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not, and does not, sorry, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority and not as his scribes. So that's the, that's how he ends the Sermon on the Mount there. Um, Yeah, I think, so I think I, I want to be careful with this first verse here because here's, here's what it, here's what it should do. 
it should make us constantly take inventory of, am I just going through the motions of my faith or do I earnestly seek after relationship with the Lord? Um, what yeah. it should not do is just lead us into paralyzing fear of wondering if we're saved or not. Yep. Um, and and I and I've and I've talked with people on both ends of this, and so this is like I guess the pastoral side of me. I've talked with people where it's like, dude, you need to take your faith seriously right now. Like you're you're nothing about you says that I love the Lord and He's the most important thing in my life. And I've also had to talk people off the cliff of just like. And legit, and, and this isn't like making fun. It's it's legitimately sad because they're on the verge of like tears, wondering like, "Am I saved? I don't know how I can. I don't know how I can guarantee all all these different things." And so here's what I would say: it's about it's about the heart behind it. Like, are are we earnestly seeking after the Lord? Are we earnestly wanting relationship with God? If that's true, um, it the 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 sins that we commit if we're earnestly um, repenting and 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 trying trying to br- to break away from those that's not evidence that we're not saved yeah. that's evidence that we are saved um it, it, when when you're truly saved that's not saying and and he never sinned again <laughs> what what's saying is what it's saying is we trust in what Christ has accomplished and we're becoming more and more like Christ every day so for some of you you might need the reinforcement of like hey like it's it's an important thing to think about, but don't be so paralyzed with the fear of it. Just earnestly trust the Lord and continue in relationship with Him. And then for some people listening, it's a wake up call of saying, "Hey, take your faith seriously," because you, the, I, the the worst thing is being one of the people who at the end is saying, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and cast out demons in yeah. Your name and do mighty works in Your name?" That is like I, I it legitimately I think this is the scariest verse in the Bible um, that we could get to the end thinking that we're Christians. And then have the rug pulled out on the other side of eternity. That is really scary. Um, yeah, and I oh, think sorry. I think real quick, it's it's one of those things where the simple fact that you might be wondering and worrying about it is a good indication that you are pursuing a relationship with Jesus, yeah. right? Uh, but I do think we've got to be careful because we can convince ourselves that we're good, and uh, I'll question, but I'm good. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, like when you read a verse like this, there is this gut level reaction and response and check in our spirits about whether or not we should evaluate. And and so you've got to be, you've got to trust the prompt of the Holy Spirit. You've got to trust the the same spirit who lives inside of you, rose Christ from the dead, right? So we have been given access to God's heart, to the truth of Christ. And the Holy Spirit's job is to illuminate truth. And so I think it's important to remember, like when we read this verse, it is like, God, keep me guarded by your truth. And and if it's just a flat read where we're disinterested and disengaging from scripture, I think that's a that's a caution. And we got to be very mindful of that too. And so it is, it is a very heavy, very, very concerning scripture if we how easy it is to do the work of the kingdom but not be associated with the kingdom, if that makes sense. Like we see all throughout the Old Testament. Like this is God uses anybody, anything to continue to fulfill his will. Uh, whether that's a donkey, whether that's a uh, secular ruler, whether that's a false, uh, not a false prophet, but a prophet who's for hire, like Balaam. Like there's there's these different play things in play. So at the end of the day, it is, God, keep me close in relationship with you and always allow my heart to be evaluated and be discerning and wise about that. So I think there is this gut level reaction to it as well, but mm-hmm. it definitely is one thing we got to be mindful of. There you go. 
Uh, so go, moving forward in Luke chapter six, he repeats the sand and the rock story. I guess yeah, to focus on that, essentially, it's the foundation, the foundation of your life, right? Are you building? Is your life built on the foundation of Christ, or is it not? Uh, famous story that we tell kids all the time. You know, the because it's an easy metaphor. Jesus is the master of easy metaphors to think about. It's almost it's like true. he's God in the flesh. Uh, going back to Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount has now concluded, and we move on to the story of the centurion with the sick servant. Uh, I need to start moving faster here. Sorry, listeners, I've been going long again. But uh, there's a centurion who has a servant who is very dear to him. He's sick, and so he sends servants or men go to ask Jesus if he can come and heal the servant. On his way there, so the centurion sends messenger saying, Hey, Lord, I don't need you to even come to my house. I know you can do it from wherever you are. I don't want to trouble you. Can you please just declare that he's healed and I know he'll be healed. Uh, and Jesus declares that he has not seen this much faith from anyone in Israel, again, hinting at the coming salvation of the Gentiles. So Jesus is incredibly imp- impressed with the faith of the centurion and he heals the servant. Uh, Luke shares the same story, but he adds in some details about just how dear the servant was to the centurion. So we get the idea that this isn't just like, oh, no, I'm going to lose my butler. Like this is no, he's like he's like a friend. Uh, In Matthew chapter 11, we get the story about uh, the messengers from John the Baptist, who at this point is in prison for speaking out against Herod Agrippa. So this is not Herod the Great, who uh, wasn't so great and also killed a bunch of babies in Bethlehem. This is Herod Agrippa. Uh, John, and sorry, John calls him out because he stole his brother's wife. And so he's basically saying, hey, this is a sinful thing that you did. And Herod's not, you know, he's not too keen on all that. Uh, John may have been having a small crisis of faith here, which is interesting, or having a hard time reconciling his current position with what he understood, what his role was supposed to be. Um, so it, it, it's it's good because it shows us that John is not a perfect guy. Uh, John is, and this is either a moment of doubt or this is a moment of John not fully understanding what the coming of Christ was going to be like and having to have that kind of corrected for him a little bit. Uh, Jesus reassures him though, in this moment that he is the Messiah. And he quotes some messianic prophecies specifically from Isaiah, uh, showing how his ministry is lining up with what was foretold by the prophets. Uh, And we also get this high praise for John. And we talked about this a little bit last week, Uh, but Jesus says, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face and will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, of uh, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all of the prophets of the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Uh, so Jesus not only reinforces to John who Jesus is, Jesus also reinforces who John is as well. Uh, the Luke passage there is mostly the same. After that, we get into Matthew chapter 11. Uh, we get some of the recorded sayings of Jesus calling out, or we get some recorded sayings of Jesus calling woe upon different cities that will not repent, including Chorazin, Bethsaida, and notably Capernaum, which is interesting. Capernaum, you might remember, is where Jesus does a lot of his ministry. It's where Peter, Andrew, James, and John are from. Uh, and so Jesus says that if the signs done in Capernaum were done in Sodom, it would still be there. Uh, or in other words, he's saying that Capernaum is more wicked than Sodom because they're seeing all of the signs and wonders they doing that he's doing, and yet they're still pers- persisting in, in their sinfulness. So really interesting point that he's making there. Uh, Jesus also shares that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, which is, I think, a beautiful way of describing the new covenant that he is ushering in. 
And then the final story I have today is from the Gospel of Luke. Here, Jesus is eating with a Pharisee named Simon and a sinful woman. Uh, when we say that, it's probably a prostitute is what we're meant to in, in, infer from that. Uh, comes and weeps at his feet, anointing them with both her tears and ointment. Uh, Simon thinks Simon is the Pharisee. Uh, Simon thinks to himself that, well, if Jesus is a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And Jesus knows what he's thinking because he's God in the flesh, uh, tells him a parable. He says, who would be... Who would be more grateful in this moment? Uh, let's say a moneylender has two debtors. One owes 500 denarii and the other one 50. He cancels the debt. Who's more grateful? And Simon's like, well, the one who had the larger debt. And Jesus is like, correct. <laughs> yep. And he's saying- Ding, 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 ding. Yep. And his point is, and I don't, his point here is not that this woman had a so much larger debt than Simon. His point is she knows she did. Um, and I think his point here is that she recognizes- the incredible gift that the forgiveness of sin is. And Simon does not yet yep. recognize that. Uh, and he tells him like, hey, when I came in, you didn't give me a kiss, which is a weird thing to ask another guy for, but you know, different cultures, different times. Uh, but he says, you didn't you didn't wash my feet. You didn't prepare anything. And yet this woman is here and she hasn't stopped um, uh, use, using ointment on my feet, anointing my feet. That's what the word I was looking for since I came in. And he's showing how she is receiving the gift of his grace and forgiveness and she recognizes what it is and Simon does not. Yeah. And there's some cultural things at play here too, just to be honest about Simon inviting Jesus to his house, but showing the dishonor and actually the disrespect to Christ himself by not offering him these things that would be customary for hospitality. And so Part of what Jesus is getting at is Jesus in this moment realizes, like he knew as he walked in, because there was no servant, there was no greeting, there was no respect or honor paid to him. If he is a teacher or a rabbi, it carries a certain level of respect culturally. And so the simple fact that he was invited, like this is part of that cultural piece going on, the fact that he was invited and not given a kiss as a greeting, which is a sign of honor, not being, not having a servant wash his feet, which is a sign of uh, of respect and um, concern, he he calls out Simon for the disrespect and the dishonor that he's being paid by Simon as Jesus, as the rabbi or teacher that he's known for. And this woman who is lowly is showing him not just the respect, but like all of the attention is focused on his feet. If you notice that in this passage, all of the attention is focused on his feet. The feet are the like the dirtiest part of 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 the Middle Eastern culture because it's so dusty. There were sandals. Like the feet are the dirtiest part. That's why it's like a lowly position of a servant. When we get to John thirteen at one point, we'll see like the lowly the lowest place for a servant to serve is to wash the feet of the individuals and the guests who come in. So all that to say, like there's this um, contrast being played out that Jesus calls Simon out for as well, and and so. There's this, this battle at, that's being waged. Jesus was totally disrespected in this moment. He was invited to this house, but totally disrespected by the leaders and the religious uh, Pharisees and, and, and people like the, the common ground or the, the, the community of people that was there. Sorry. Um, so that's also what's being at play here. So that, that the stark contrast is even more powerful to consider what Jesus is saying and reaffirming this woman is highlighting the fact that she has not just recognized the grace given to her, but she is responding in humility while Simon has responded from a place of pride and arrogance. So 
Um, that's some of the deep cultural things going on there too. Oh, great, great point out. Uh, before Aaron continues on with what he's going to be talking about <laughs> today, uh, we do want to take a moment to remind you to leave a five-star review on whatever app you're listening on, particularly Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are the ones that kind of help us out the most, uh, but it just helps get the message that, or it helps get this podcast out there to more people. We can grow this community of people reading the Bible together. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And Ooh. if you do that, we will give you a shout out and we'll read the review on the podcast just because you know, it's the kind of guys we are. We yes. like to give our listeners a shout out. Yes, because we just appreciate you being part of the community and we know you're there. So thanks for doing that ahead of time. Uh, as as Evan has said, it's, it's kind of my turn to jump in here as we continue this week's reading. Um, after this passage uh, in Luke chapter seven, we continue in the book of Luke in chapter eight, verses one through three, which is kind of the standalone account in all of the synoptic gospels and all of the gospels really. Uh, but it's just, uh, it, t- it takes a moment where Luke will report uh, who was with him uh, and highlights also the women who are with him referring to Jesus uh, and highlights the women who are part of Jesus' traveling companions. Uh, so it says this in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says, Afterward, he was traveling from one town and, and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come, in out, of, had come out of her. That's significant. Uh, jo- Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. So some of these ladies are actually also like the financial contributors to the ministry and the traveling of Jesus and his 12. Um, but it's it's important to note, like there is the, there is value placed on women that is countercultural to the time. And we've hit this a few different times throughout the years of podcasts we've been doing. But again, it is, is a very significant moment for Luke as he's reporting to Theophilus who else was with Jesus and his uh, entourage is kind of a dirty word, I feel like, in using in this context because of the women there, but it's his group of traveling companions. And so it's, it's a fun moment to, again, see Jesus and the Gospels reaffirm the value and worth of, of females and women, and it's a big deal. Uh, we shift into Mark chapter 3, uh, where there are several passages and topics that we read about uh, in this section. Uh, the first of which is Jesus, uh, his family considers him out of his mind, which is kind of crazy. Uh, we don't see this very often, but he's, there's a story where Jesus is sitting in this house. And this is like a context of the story is going to be read over the next few passages through our reading plan. Uh, but it says that his, his, his mother and brothers show up. They heard that he was in a house surrounded by people where no, there was no room to eat or to do anything because it was so packed full. They think he's out of his mind. Verse 21 says, when his family had heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind, which is pretty significant um, because it just, again, reaffirms that Jesus's own family didn't actually understand who he was just yet. I think Mary's the only... Uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Mary's the only one who does have some consideration because even at the even at his birth, even at her pregnancy, it was this moment of understanding, and she cherished these things and pondered them in her heart. Um, but her brother, his brothers, I mean, we know this when we get into James and we get into um, uh, uh, what's his other brother's name? Shoot, uh, Jude. Jude. Thank you. Uh, I was like, he's in the New Testament. Where is it? And also uh, Simon, who's like the Cooper Manning of the Jesus brothers. So. <laughs> Touche. Um, so anyways, they're just struggling to believe they think he's out of his mind. And that's a big statement. And so we see this little ditty at the very beginning of Mark chapter 3, verses 20 here. Um, we continue on in this passage. We see where the scribes, after he say he's possessed by Beelzebub, 
Beelzebul, which is a slang word for Satan. Uh, it literally means Lord of the Flies. So if you ever read the book as a kid, Lord of the Flies, oh my. Uh, Beelzebul is the name that would be used there in the, the Old Testament or New Testament. I never realized that was the, uh, as, is it a double on I don't know what the way, but like, yeah, I never realized there was an extra layer to the title of that book. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, now you, you know. Go. Um, Jesus refutes this, um, this the slander on his name by using an analogy of this idea of like a house divided among itself can't stand, a kingdom divided among itself, it will not stand. Um, so he uses this parable to refute what they say. And then he makes this statement uh, about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, and in essence, I want to take a moment and kind of explain what this means, because I think this is a a very difficult passage to understand because the question always comes up, well, what does that even mean? What does blaspheming against the Holy Spirit mean? Uh, so I'm taking this from my preaching the word commentary on the book of Matt, Mark and Matthew. Uh, and it says that it's just this idea of like, in a nutshell, he uh, the, the editor of this commentary quote, quotes Walford, uh, who's another commentator on the book of Matthew himself and Mark. Uh, and it's just this idea of like attributing to Satan what is accomplished by God's power. That's in essence what it breaks down to me. This idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is taking what God is doing by his power and attributing to Satan, which is basically what the Pharisees are doing here. Um, I think it can be further explained this way is, and again, this is being stolen from Kent Hughes as the chief editor of this series, uh, but it says it's knowledge of the light, a hatred of it. And there is also an earnest and persistent effort to put out that light. Uh, and so that's the picture of what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, which to be honest with you is the motive and intent of the Pharisees. So then for me, it brings this uh, deeper challenge of this passage is not just God being unforgiving of the Pharisees, but it's this, this calling out of their motive and intent and saying, if this is what you are doing, which I know it is, this cannot be forgiven. Um, and, and we know God is a forgiving God, but we know God is a justice, a just God as well. And he will punish those who rebel, the, who does, the, who, those who do not follow in line with his truth. Um, but there is this moment where he calls out the Pharisees. He calls them out for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He's saying, this is essentially what you're doing. And if you do this, there's not forgiveness for you. Um, and so that's kind of a stark, very, very uh, strong exhortation rebuke. Um, we we shift this week's reading also into Matthew chapter 20 or 12 verses 22 to 45. Um, it's some of the parallel, the parallel passages of the, of the one we read in Mark there, uh, but it gives us some more information and more topics uh, than Mark's passage. Um, we find out why Jesus is called Beelzebul. Uh, it's because he heals a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak, and the crowds were asking if he truly was or could be the son of David, which is the promised Messiah. And because the Pharisees rejected the idea, they called him Satan. Um, we get the blasphemy rebuke here too. Uh, and then we also get an exhortation um, in a, a, about the idea of making a tree good so it produces good fruit compared to having a bad tree, which has bad fruit. Um, and then he gets this, he calls he, <laughs> he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, uh, which is a harsh statement with very prophetic undertones. Ancient swears. Um, pretty much. Uh, and there's this admonishment in this rebuke um, by Christ to change their ways. Um, we will not see this admonishment by Jesus to the Pharisees later in the gospel. So there is a moment that you get this sense that he's explaining to the Pharisees their motive, their heart, and their action behind calling him, in essence, a, sl a slanderous way of saying Satan. Uh, and then, but you see this admonishment of don't be, a, it's, it's almost a gracious thing of calling them to repentance that we're not going to see later on in the gospels. And spoilers, we know the Pharisees 
do not follow the truth and they actually follow through and have Christ killed. And so that's, and crucified. And that's, that's just the reality. But this is, we see this gracious moment with Christ interacting with these religious leaders. Um, at that point, the religious leaders then ask for a sign again, which Jesus rebukes them for wanting because only an evil quote unquote, and adulterous generation demands a sign. He then points to the prophet Jonah as the only sign they will see the idea of being shut up three days and three nights in the belly of a well. So Jesus himself will be shut up three days and nights in the belly of the earth. After which he says, those very people who were not God's people will rise up to judge God's people. In essence, he calls out the the the, um, the Ninevites. He calls out Sodom. He says, hey, the queen of the south will all rise and judge God's people because they repented. They sought after wisdom just like the queen of the south did with the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus says that uh, there's something more wise than Solomon present before you today. Uh, and so he, in essence, is just saying there are people who have been called out, rebuked, and prophesied of their impending destruction, and they have responded in repentance. And yet you who are hearing the truth, seeing the truth before you, you are not responding in repentance. So it's almost a woe, like a rebuke and a concern of their response as an evil and wicked and adulterous generation. We continue, we see this uh, unclean spirit comes out of a person uh, where Jesus explains what's going on here. Uh, And when someone is, it's it's kind of a like a um, a period to the end of the situation of what's going on in this this passage. He just explains when an unclean spirit is removed from a person, they go around looking for a place to reside. He finds nothing. The, the evil spirit finds no place to re, to reside, returns to its original host, and finds it empty. And then it will bring in seven other spirits more evil than itself. In essence, what Jesus is hitting at is the simple truth that the truth brings deliverance and freedom. And when one doesn't surrender to the truth, we become empty homes and waiting to be resided in, which is why it's important to respond to salvation, moving it to modern times today. It's important to respond to salvation with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and then to stay rooted in, in Scripture and in Christ. Because if not, there is a you will fall away and even more so fall deeper down the path, so to speak, away from Christ, which makes it harder to respond and return to Jesus. And so it's just kind of this random moment, but it's it's the fulfillment of the story in the passage, which is what caused the Pharisee leaders to call Jesus Satan. Jesus then rebukes them, explains a few things, and then ends by circling back to this idea of deliverance and freedom and a reminder to not just walk in the freedom that the truth brings, but have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit fill you and and over and, and consume you so that way there's no space for an evil spirit to reside again. Uh, so that's that's where we wrap up that section. Uh, we then shift into a, a Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, which talks about this idea of who Jesus's brothers and sisters are and mother is. And Mark 3, 31 through 35, uh, as well as Matthew 12, 46 to 50, as well as Luke 18, 19 to 21, all detail this moment where Jesus's brothers and mothers come to him. They're still in the, Jesus is still in the house having a conversation. They show up, they ask to speak to him. And Jesus responds by saying, who are my mother, my brothers and my sisters? And he says, "The look around you. Those who do the will of God are my brother and sisters and mother. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all carry that same account. And it's not necessarily a slam 
or a, a negative comment to Jesus's biological mother, brothers and sisters, but it is a, it is a, a glimpse into a higher understanding of the family of God. And those who do the will of God are considered brothers and sisters of Christ. And that's the picture Jesus is painting is those who are obedient are in my family and those who reject me are, are going to be removed from my family. We then shift into the parable of the sower portion. And this is kind of where we we will get the wrap up of the rest of our day, I think. And there's one uh, story, of, actually there's a double story of healing that occurs, but we hear this parable. Jesus teaches a lot in parables if you didn't catch on to that. Uh, but Jesus is sitting by the sea and then he teaches this parable, the sower uh, in Mark 4, 1 through 9, Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and then Luke 8, 4 through 8, all detail this same parable. In essence, Jesus says, consider the sower or the farmer who sows seed. Seed that he sows falls on a hard beaten path that is immediately picked up and eaten by the birds. Some seed is fallen on the rocky ground that grew quickly, that but then died when the sun came out because it had no root base. The third section or portion of seed fell on thorns, grew up, but the life was choked out of it because of the thorns. And then the final example is the fertile soil where the seed falls and then it grows and produces a harvest of 30, 60, 100 times. You get the same passage, a similar passage in Matthew and Luke, as I've already explained. And then we see this explanation coming, uh, starting in Mark 4, 10 through 20. But I want to read this first portion here, the first couple of verses, because it's, in essence, Jesus is is aside and alone with his disciples, and they ask him to explain. So it says this in verse 12, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. He answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, everything comes in parables, so that they they may indeed look and yet not perceive, that they may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. This is kind of a harsh statement because it's almost resting through the tension of, wouldn't Jesus want everybody to know the truth and return and repent? Yes, absolutely. But Jesus knows the motivation of their hearts. And so if they were to return, this is obviously open-handed. This is my kind of perspective on this passage specifically before he goes in the explanation of the, of the parable, but it's their heart may not be truly an alignment with the hope and the truth of the gospel. So Jesus is speaking to the heart of the individual. And he knows, I mean, I think we read it earlier in, in the gospels last week, about Jesus knowing the hearts of the audience. He knows what they're going to do and how they're going to respond. So his goal is to present truth, but that it would that it would produce the right fruit, not the the glimpse of fruit that could then happen as he explains the parable of the sower. So it is a very private conversation that he's having with those closest to him, the 12 plus these ladies who are with him. And that's the 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 interaction he has before he goes into the explanation of the parable. Uh, which is where we pick up Mark 4, 13 to 20, and Matthew 13, 10 through 23, as well as Luke 8, 9 to 18, which are pretty similar accounts, but there's a few things that are added in the Matthew and Luke passages I'll, I'll get to in just a second. In Mark chapter 4, he says, he in essence says, this is the answer to the parable. This is the clarity of the parable. The seed is the word of God. The hard path is where Satan immediately comes and steals the truth before anything can happen. So it doesn't have any chance to take root. The rocky soil is the the truth that's received with joy in the individual, but then trials and hardships and persecution show up and then leads to the, the those who have received it with joy fall away because they have no roots. 
The thorns are reflective of a seed that grows, but the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and desires for other things enter in and choke the truth out, and it becomes unfruitful. It's important to know, like in this instance, there is a vine, there is growth, there is a sprout, but there's no fruit. And you won't know that there's no fruit until it's already grown. And you then see because of the thorns that there is no life and vitality to the fruitfulness of the plant, so to speak. So that's the picture. And then he finally says the fertile soil is the one that receives the truth and produces fruitfulness 30, 60, 100 times over. Uh, So one seed produces 30 or 60 or 100 times more than just the seed it was there. Uh, In Matthew 13, 10 through 23, it's a similar account, but there's this added section in verses 16 to 17 that says this before he explains the parable, says, blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, but didn't see them to hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. And it's just this incredible moment where Jesus is saying, you are more blessed than the prophets who have come before you. You are more blessed than the righteous people who have come before you because the things that they prophesied or foretold or wanted and longed to see, you are now seeing and hearing that they didn't get to. And so it was just kind of a fun little highlight where Jesus is elevating and, and caring well for those who are with him in that moment. Uh, Luke chapter 8 verses 9 through 18 is a similar account to both of them, but then it adds verses 16 to 18. And this is what it says. It says, no one lighting after lighting a lamp covers it with a basket or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light for nothing is concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known and brought to light. Therefore, take care of how you listen for whoever has more will be given to him and whoever does not have even more, even what he has will be taken away from him. And then after this passage, we shift into Mark 4, 21 through 29. And it, it's a similar account of the little, I called it the little light of mine song. Uh, this little light of mine. So, I'm going to let it shine. But we get that at the end of the parable of the silver explained, Jesus has this exhortation of not just you are seeing things and hearing things that not everybody has heard or seen or think those who have longed before you. But you're also like a lamp. You're meant to. Put, you're not meant to hide this under a bowl. You're not not to hide this under a bed. But you're put on this lampstand. You're supposed to be and do what's appropriate with light is to make it visible so everybody who comes in might see. Uh, and so in Mark four twenty one, we get the similar account. Uh, it does add a description about this: the kingdom of God being like a man who sows seed, not like the parable of the sower, but like a man who sows seed and then sleeps and wakes day after day. And it says the seed sprouts and grows, even though the farmer doesn't really know why or how, and that the soil produces the crop that the farmer, uh, and then the, that the farmer then harvests when it's time. And so it is this picture of a kingdom of God. Jesus shifts from the parable of the sower, where he's starting to talk about the, the, the byproduct of the seed, but now shifts into this kingdom description about what the kingdom of God will be like. And the picture in essence is this, that the seed is sown there's not real understanding of how it, it it grows and produces a harvest. Go back to what he said about the parable of the sower, the 30, 60, 100 fold harvest, because the farmer doesn't understand, but the kingdom of God is going to expand and grow and produce a harvest, even though we may not understand it. So the truth of the gospel, in essence, transforms lives, even though we can't fully understand how these words on a, on a page from the Bible and the truth that is fulfilled in Jesus transform hearts and lives. It's not comprehensible to us. We just know the byproduct of it, which is what Jesus is getting at in this account in Mark chapter four. 
Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 30 is another farming parable about a, a farmer sowing seed in a field, yet this time it adds that an enemy sows weeds in a field too. And the farmer, the weeds and and the, the wheat grow together. The servants of the farmer say, should we just pull out the weeds? And the farmer says, no, in order to, he understands in order to save the crop, he must let the crop grow with the weeds. And then at the harvest time, you separate the weeds from the wheat. And then that's the direction he's given. And this is kind of an interesting thing too, because Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And so it's this idea that there will be, I mean, dare I say it this way, false teachings and false leaders and false followers growing in this kingdom mantra or model that if you rip them out, you actually destroy the harvest. And so there is this tension that exists as I'm looking at it from a pastoral lens that I'm, I'm kind of uneasy with that Jesus allows these two things to grow together because at the harvest time, which is a foreshadowing of eternity, when we all stand before Christ, that's where Jesus will separate the, the wheat from the weeds. He knows what he's doing. We don't, but it is this tension of where he allows things to grow up that are unhealthy, that are not pro- productive, that are not beneficial to the kingdom. He allows it to grow with those things that are byproducts of the kingdom, the fruitfulness, the harvest. And at the right time, he will then separate when it's necessary. So that's the picture in Matthew chapter 13. Again, one that I'm uneasy with because if it's me, I want to remove the bad so I keep keep the good. But there's damage that happens when you do that. So uh, Mark chapter 4, we jump in and we get this mustard seed analogies, which if you've ever seen a mustard seed, I actually have a jar of them in my office maybe um, because I use them for a sermon illustration back in the day as a youth pastor. Uh, but it's one of the smallest seeds. Yet it grows to be an, to, to, to produce a tree that's about 20 feet in average. Some can grow all the way up to 30 feet. Um, but that's a, pretty, that's a pretty large tree for from a small seed. But Jesus is just providing this idea of clarity and how the kingdom will grow. It will grow explosively. One small seed will produce a 20-foot tree. Much like the kingdom, one seed of truth will produce a return exponentially and explosively. Matthew chapter 13 is the next passage we read. It is a mustard seed parable. Uh, followed by 11 in the wheat flour, uh, and then followed by an explanation of these things and a few other exhortations, which this is the longest section I'm going to read today because it just was really good and I didn't want to cut it up and dice it up. And then we'll get into a few miracles and then wrap up this week's uh, reading and explanation of the text. It says this in Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 to 52. So Jesus told the crowd all these things in parables and he did not tell them anything without a parable. So parables are his form of communication. There's a reason for that. So that what was spoken, this is what it is, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is bringing in all of the audience into the kingdom truths and the kingdom principles that have been hidden for a long time. The prophets foretold this, that he would speak in parables, that the Messiah would speak in parables. So he's telling parables to bring them into kingdom truths that have been secrets for a while but also to fulfill the prophecy about the Messiah. So that's a big deal. He said this in verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. These are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. The, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is in the edge and the end of the age and the harvester are, are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned the fire, so it will be with, with, at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace 
where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. So he's explaining what's really going on. This is a parable foretelling of the end times, and, and he's pretty clear about what's going to happen there. Verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. And he continues another kingdom principle. Verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had bought and he had, he had and bought it. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish. And when it was full, they dragged it to ashore, sat down and gathered the good fish into the containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They answered him, yes. Therefore, he said, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple and the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out his storeroom treasures, new and old. And it's this incredible picture of the worth of the truth of the gospel, where it's worth selling everything. It's well worth laying down our lives for. And Jesus is painting a kingdom truth and drawing in those listeners of his, the 12 disciples, the ladies with them, the closest to him. And they say, and he says, this is worth everything of yours. Everything valuable fails in comparison to the truth of that I'm telling you. And then he challenges them that everybody who becomes a disciple is like an owner of the house who brings out of the storeroom and treasures new and old. It, he, he, in essence, is saying it's worth surrendering everything you have to hold tightly to this. Nothing is more treasurable. Nothing is worth more than this truth of the gospel. And it's this incredible challenge as followers of Christ, what that could look like. We then shift into Matthew, Mark, and Luke in, a, in parallel accounts about Jesus calming a storm. We're in Mark 4, 35 to 41. They all get in a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. Jesus falls asleep in the stern. There's a storm that shows up, throws waves over the side of the boat, and they feel like they're about to die. Now, here's the thing you got to remember. These are, they are seasoned fishermen who have navigated the sea multiple times. So they would be familiar with the storms that just show up because of the way the Sea of Galilee is. It's in a low point and there's hills surrounding it. But sometimes like, so storms come up over those hills quickly and, and it throws the Sea of Galilee into a, a massive storm wave and problematic reality. But these fishermen would have been familiar with how that works. This is a storm unlike any they've experienced. So there is some dynamic here at play. So they're freaking out. They think they're about to die. They woke Jesus up and he gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves, obviously my paraphrase, and it says everything was calm and the disciples' response was, who is this that even the son of man or even the wind and the waves obey him? And we get a parallel account, similar account in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, and then Luke 8, 22 to 25 as well. And it's a pretty remarkable thing to even consider. We we just went through a week of just like some really solid downpour rain, uh, which I love because being a, a kid from Virginia, I used to be a part of rainstorms, not the Seattle spit that we get sometimes. That was also happening Shots yesterday. Shots fired. Um, but I love the rain. And so it was pretty wa- incredible to watch. But I And I've, I've seen Hurricane weather at the beach before where it's coming in and you see the surf tro- you know, kicking up. Uh, but it's pretty incredible to think that God, Jesus in this boat, in this moment, wakes up in the midst of his disciples freaking out, doesn't cater to them, just speaks to the wind and the waves, and it just becomes calm. And it's just incredible miracle and powerful example of Jesus' sovereignty. We then get this encounter of Legion, a man who is possessed by multiple demons. It's a Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
parallel accounts as well. It's on the other side of the sea where they were heading to, to a region called the Gerasenes. They encounter this man named Legion who's possessed by many demons. The, the man shows up. Jesus talks to the demons. The demons said, please don't cast us into the abyss. They said, hey, here's a field of pigs. Can I go over there, please? The man's delivered. The demons go to the pigs. They, the pigs run off the cliff into the water and drown. The shepherds herding the pigs in this moment were there, saw what happened. They ran off, told the people in town what happened. The people came out and saw only then to beg Jesus to leave the region. Uh, and the man, at this point, the man named Legion wanted to go with Jesus back across the sea, but Jesus told him to stay, tell everyone what God had done for him. And Matthew chapter eight, this is the only difference in this account between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's actually, Matthew mentions that there were two demon possessed men, which I think was interesting. And I had to kind of look this up a bit because I'm like, well, wait a minute, like there's two or is there one? I don't know. But it's not a contradiction. I put in my notes, contradiction, question mark. It's not a contradiction because it's not saying that it's it, Mark. Mark is not saying there was only one. Luke is not saying there was only one. And then Matthew comes out and says there were two. And all of the context lines up that these are parallel accounts that they all are mentioning the same conversation. But for whatever reason, the focus is on this man named Legion who was possessed by demons. And so we, we get this similar encounter that happens even as I just kind of overviewed in Mark chapter five. And then we get a similar account in Luke chapter eight that is similar, but it only mentions in Luke one demon-possessed man. And and it's it's this interesting picture for whatever reason, Legion, this one demon-possessed man was the one that was delivered from demons. We don't know about the other demon-possessed man, but we do know that there were two potentially because Matthew highlights the fact that there were two. Mark and Luke are highlighting the, the inner story of the individual whose life has changed and is delivered and freed from it. Uh, and I love that at the end of Luke, there's a st- sentence about this man after he says to Jesus, let me go with you over. And Jesus says, no, stay. And it says this, and off he went proclaiming throughout the town how much Jesus had done for him, which I think was pretty incredible. And of just a pretty powerful moment for this man who's, who's possessed by a legion of demons to have deliverance and freedom. Uh, we get, And then we shift into this last uh, portion of our reading for this week, uh, which parallels two different miracles that happen in Mark chapter 5, in Matthew, and in Luke. Uh, But there's this moment that we see in Mark chapter 5, and I'm going to try and be somewhat quick about it, but it's two pretty massive stories. They arrive back across the Sea of Galilee from the Gerasenes. He encounters a a synagogue leader whose name is Jairus, whose daughter is sick. Jairus asks his daughter or asks Jesus to come heal his daughter, so Jesus goes with him. While on this, his way, the crowd is pressing in on him. One translation actually says that it, it's like crushing him, not like to the point of death, but like it's just very, very packed and tight. There's not a lot of wiggle room. They're all moving in the same direction. And while on his way, we're introduced to this woman who had an issue of bleeding that cannot be stopped. She spends all of her money, all of her wealth trying to get better, but nothing ends up working and in fact made matters all the worse. So she hears of Jesus passing by and she thinks to herself, if only I touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed because she's heard of what Jesus has done. So she tries to get close. She crawls up underneath or crawls through the crowd, reaches to touch the hem of his garment. The power of the Messiah touches her body, delivers her and heals her. And Jesus stops dead in this moment. And he says, who touched me? In one of the gospels, we have this moment. It might be in Matthew. I didn't actually put it here in my notes specifically, but it's, he says, who touched me? And his disciples responded. One of the accounts says it was Peter who said, 
um, that everybody, Lord, you're being touched by everybody. Like the crowd is pressing in on us. Everybody's touching you. And he's like, no, powers come out of me. Who touched me? The woman realizes that what's happened, she humbles herself and is kind of timidly revealing that she was the one that touched Jesus's cloak. He affirms the woman. He stops the crowd. Now, this woman would have been an outcast. This woman would have been a social pariah because of her uncleanness. And Jesus stops to look at her, affirm her, uh, and and say, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And it's this incredible moment where Jesus is like, he doesn't have to speak. It's just the power coming out of him, which is ridiculously awesome. And while this is happening, so we have this one healing. This woman who had the issue of blood for 12 plus years is healed, radically healed by, by the power of Christ. While this is going down, people from Jairus' house, the, the synagogue leaders show up and say, hey, your daughter has died. They lose hope. Jesus tells them it's all going to be fine. Have faith. He continues on his way with Jairus and the, the crowd. They arrive at the house where there's these people crying and weeping and mourning. And Jesus makes a comment. Why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep, which I find kind of comical uh, because it's like showing up at a, a memorial and people are sorrowful and grieving the loss of a loved one. Not even a memorial, but at, at the moment someone passed and they laugh at it because of the statement they just made. Like, no, we know that she's dead. And you're saying that she's not, but she's asleep. You're ridiculous. And so it was this like weird, awkward tension and laughter. He brings in the parents and those with him, which we found out from one of the other gospels. It's Peter, James, and John. Takes him inside the house, takes her by the hand and says, little girl, get up. She does. She gets up, starts walking around. Jesus orders two things. One, to feed her. And two, to not tell anybody about her about what happened. I put in my parentheses in my notes, like this just seems absurd. Can I just be honest with you? My little girl is dead. Jesus shows up, grabs her by the hand, says, little girl, get up. And I'm like in my house, I would be overwhelmed in shock and awe and joy and, and fear and all of these things. And Jesus says, hey, feed her, which is practical. But then the other side of it, because she's on, on the verge of death anyways, when Jairus found Jesus, but then say, don't tell me, make sure no one knows what happened. That just seems absolutely absurd. Like this is the most complicated thing that you could have ever said to me, Jesus, but that's what happens. That's what Jesus says to her. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, we get in a, a similar account, but Jesus, this is the only difference. Again, I put contradiction question mark. It's not, but Jesus introduced to Jairus, Jairus's situation, having mentioned that his daughter was already dead uh, and asking Jesus to come touch her so she may come alive again. And the, the, the nuance here is the account of Matthew could have started the conversation late, written down the interaction later, but at the end of the day, the situation is still the same. This, this daughter who was on the appointed death when he first met Jesus and Jairus first met Jesus in the Mark account only shows the interaction starting from Matthew as if his daughter had already died. And so he, she's on the verge of death. She's dying. Come heal her. Come bring her back to life. That was the plea that Jairus was giving Jesus. So Matthew's not contradictory. It just picks up the story in a different perspective at a different moment of time. We still get a similar account of this lady who had the issue of blood was healed, uh, but that was the only difference in this Matthew passage. And then finally in Luke, we have a very similar passage, the a passage of Mark specifically about the interaction with Jairus and his daughter, as well as the woman with the issue of blood, followed by Jesus' comical rebuke of why are you crying and making such a show? She's not dead, but asleep. And they laugh at her. Jesus heals. And it says that word spread about what had happened all throughout the town. And that's where we get to end this week's reading in the Gospels of the book of Luke. So. There you be. All right. Well, we have a couple quick segments to do before we call it off for today. The first one being, what did we learn? 
for me this week, the this again, it's going to be so hard to actually <laughs> narrow it down to one thing that we learned yeah, from I'd the be, gospel. I'm surprised accounts. you actually have one little dot here about. Yeah, I had. Well, last week I didn't put in a dot. I was just like, oh yeah, I'll just think of something when it happens because like you know you talk about so much. And I was like, you can't narrow it down. So nope. this week I thought about uh, in the Sermon on the Mount um, when Jesus says, "You have heard it said." blank, but I say blank. And I think for that, it's a reminder to to take not just our external sin seriously, but to take our internal sin seriously. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, like the, the easiest one is murder. <laughs> like, like we can all, like for the most part, most of us don't struggle with murder. Um, and if you do, God loves you and there's forgiveness, but like most of us aren't like, and I'm man. glad you're listening. Yeah. And I'm glad you're listening. But for the, for the most part, most of us aren't like, man, I just want to kill that guy. Um, but how often am I just angry at, yeah. at someone? How often am I angry at the Houston Astros? But but in all <laughs> but in all seriousness, he's a Mariners fan. Um, but yeah, no, no, like but like it's it's a reminder that it's not just about um, our actions, which are incredibly important. This is not to say that they're not important, um, but it's also an important reminder for me every day to take take stock of my heart to take start of to take stock of my mind and and to think through how is how is my own sin affecting my heart how is my own sin affecting my mind and, and to guard that just as much as I guard my external actions as well yeah that's really good uh, I think mine hinges back to the longer passage I read today in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus is just talking about the kingdom and and how valuable and how worth the truth of the kingdom is, where he says the idea of, of someone who finds a pearl and sells everything they have just to have that one pearl, or an individual finds treasure in a field, buries it, sells everything to buy that field because the treasure is so worth it. It's so valuable. And, and then the challenge at the end of it, the idea of every teacher of law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out a storeroom. Tra- like he holds nothing back and gives it freely because of the truth and the profundity of the gospel is that powerful and that valuable. Uh, and it just challenges me. It challenges me to consider what in my life am I withholding be, from the from tr- grabbing hold and entirely of the gospel because it's worth it. It's where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Am I treasuring the gospel of, of everything else in my life? And if not, God help me to be aware of that and to repent of it. I think that was the biggest application I took coming out of this week's reading. All right. Well, last segment today is we did have a question. We actually had a few questions come in, so we'll have to space them out a little bit. But the first one we're going to talk about, we will do right now. All right. This is actually a two-parter. It says, we just finished the prophets and I recently heard that there are people who claim to be prophets in today's age. Is that even possible? How should we handle this? Ooh, and then, spicy. I know. And the second question says, in Malachi 3.10, we talked about testing God. But in Matthew 4.7, Jesus quotes scripture saying that we shouldn't test God. He quotes Deuteronomy there. Uh, and so, which is right. Okay. So I'm going to answer the first one, Aaron, and answer the second yep. one. I'd take the harder one. There you, yeah, it's, it's true. I'm just kidding. Uh, okay. So I think what's important to recognize here is what do we mean by prophet? Um, so, I, and not everyone agrees on this. This is kind of an open-handed issue, but I, I'm very much convinced that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are active today, that the spiritual mm-hmm. gifts are act, active today. And one of those is the gift of prophecies. So when someone is saying that they're a prophet, are they saying that they operate in the gift of prophecy? If that's the case, I believe that. I think yeah. that that can happen. Yeah, and we find that in the New Testament, that it backs that up. Yeah, uh, where, where I do think that it gets sketchy is not sketchy, where I think it's wrong and sinful is yes. if someone's claiming to uh, essentially have fresh 
divine inspiration from God that is on par with scripture. Yep. Uh, and so in, at the end of Revelation, we do get um, this verse where it says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written of in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. So this is the towards the end of Revelation chapter 22. We typically take this to, to mean, and I agree, that this is the closing of scripture, that essentially that th- this verse is saying, after Revelation, it's done. God has finished revealing revealing himself to us through divinely inspired scripture. That doesn't mean that God is silent now, that like we have the Holy Spirit. And there, I, I would even say that doesn't mean that God has finished giving revelation in the sense of like, again, people are active in spiritual gifts. That does very much happen. What we're saying is that the authority of scripture is still paramount and we need to check everything against scripture. Um, and so like famously, like you can think of, the, I mean, there's a bunch of, it's funny when you read like, anthropology and people, what people describe as Christian versus what we would actually describe as Christians. Cause like Mormons and Jehovah's witness are lumped in as Christians. Ooh, uh, be careful, bro. You're going to ruffle some feathers. I mean, just oh, kidding. Yeah. They're, just not, kidding. they're not I'm Christians. Just they're it's not. 100%. So it's just, it's just one of those things where like the, um, the doctrines are incompatible. Yes. Um, and this isn't like a case where like, like, and, I, and I'm very, and we're not saying this in a slanderous way. We're saying this in a truth filled way. So just, I just want you to hear, I know we kind of joke tongue in cheek for a moment, but this is, there is a truth to the, what Evan's about to say. So it's important to, to, to hear the truth behind it. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, um, I'm, I'm not one of the people who where it's like my specific denomination has this right and every other denomination is wrong. No, I'm, I'm like, like Presbyterians are Christians, Baptists are Christians, Assemblies of God are Christians, Catholics are Christians, Orthodox are Christians. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm very like widely based on that one more so than maybe some other people are. Um, but when you have like, like the claims of Mormonism are claims of fresh revelation, divinely inspired that's what Joseph Smith is claiming is that that's what he has from God. And he's adding the book of Mormon as the third Testament. Um, Islam is a claim that Muhammad received uh, the Quran from God, which is also divinely inspired scripture. He's adding that onto it. Uh, Jehovah's witness. I forgot what the, the exact claim of how the, the scripture comes, but they believe that like they received divine revelation that uh Jesus was actually Michael the Archangel, and he returned in like around World War One. I. I don't remember exactly when that was, but um, all of all of those claims, we would say that's false. Those are false prophets, yeah. um, and and they're and they're trying to deceive people through that. So that's what we would say. Are there prophets today in the sense of people operating in the gift of prophecy, uh, which means like that, like they're getting things from God and they're sharing that with people, and it also means and, and the other part of the gift of prophecy that doesn't get any play is speaking to culture, which is what yeah, the prophets did back then as well. The, both of those gifts are very active. Uh, what we would say is that there's not capital P prophets who are adding on divinely inspired scripture to the Bible. And if someone's claiming that, uh, I, I would say, no, they're, they're a false prophet. Sorry, I was just looking up one verse. Oh, you did? Um, in Ephesians 4.11, but it's, it's this idea, like, now these are the gifts of the church Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. Um, and so there are, there are roles that prophets play in today's world, but they're not writing prophetic and answering on behalf of God. So that's one of the biggest distinctions to make. There are roles for prophets today in our modern times, but their role is to is to help to build up the church, edify the church, and establish his kingdom on earth. Um, Malachi, the second question was Malachi 3.10. Uh, and so I just want to take a moment and read exactly what the context is. The verse that was referred to is, bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. So that's where we're asking the question. He says, test me here. Um, and, and this is regarding specifically tithing. This is re- regarding specifically the practice that God has established before even the law was established because we see that the, 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 the cult, the tithe happened with, um, 
Abram and Melchizedek, which is before the law. Anyways, um, then we see in, in Matthew 4, 7, this is the verse that's being, Jesus also said, this is after the, during the tempta- tempting of, of Satan with Jesus, uh, where it says, hey, he quotes scripture, uh, and then talking about throwing yourself down um, and your angels will save you. You won't strike your foot against a stone. Jesus responds to him in verse seven. It is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Um, and he's quoting there, even as Evan, you alluded to his, his Deuteronomy chapter, uh, shoot, I forgot the chapter six, sorry, verse 13. Uh, or no, sorry. He, it's actually verse, I just have the full passage. I think it's important to read. Um, I'm just going to read it. De- Deuteronomy 6, 13 to, to 18. This is what it says. Fear the Lord your God, worship him, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of the earth. That's a hard statement. Do not test the Lord. Verse 16, here it is. Do not test the Lord your God as you have tested him at Massa. Carefully absorb the, observe the commands of the Lord your God, the decrees, the statutes he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that you may prosper, so that you may enter and progress or possess the good land the Lord your God swore to give your ancestors. So the context here is important to understand too, because on one hand, we have the prophet Malachi saying, God has said, test me in my faithfulness to provide for you as you are obedient in the tithe, to return to me 10% of what I've I've blessed you with. And then in Matthew, he's referring back to Deuteronomy where it says, do not test the Lord like you did at Massa. Massa was a spot where the people cried out and complained to, to Moses, I guess to God through Moses about God's lack of provision and his lack of, of care for them there. Unfortunately, that doesn't really narrow it down. <laughs> Like no, it doesn't, right? the time that the people of Israel grumbled know, It's God. all throughout the wilderness, but it was a wilderness in- example, right? So it's this wilderness moment where God's people are saying, he doesn't really care. He doesn't provide. He doesn't, he brought us out to kill us. There was a rebellious attitude in the heart. And so the issue here in this question is, is which is right? It's they're both right in essence. One is God is saying, test me to his people in the Old Testament when it comes to provision for you food and well-being and life and vitality, test me in that. And he's saying, test me by, take us, like, give me 10% and see that your storehouses will be filled. You will be provided for if you give me a 10th. And the tension that, that Matthew and, and that Jesus is bringing up is it's this heart motivation. Like God, God is not in the business of saying, well, you owe me this. You have to do this. It's a posture of the heart, much like we've already talked about in other moments throughout this podcast, but it's a matter of the heart. Am I testing God because I demand him to do what he, what I want him to do? Or am I taking him at his word and taking a step of faith and trusting what he has to say? I should not come at it from an arrogant point of view, which is what God's people did in the wilderness. It's this idea of rebellion and this idea of tension. And so that's what's going on here in the, in the, pod, or in the, in the passages is the appropriate way to test God is a pure heart and a true heart versus an arrogant and prideful heart. Well, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of like a couple of examples that spring to mind. Like first off, the testing of Malachi it's Jesus says something very similar today on the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about how God takes care of the birds of the field and the lilies of the, sorry the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Um, that is in a way testing God. He's saying it's going to happen. Don't be anxious. Just do these things and it will happen to you. Um, and the other one that comes to mind is just like the idea of of the mode. It, it, it's always been funny how Mary and Zachariah both question God. Yeah. On on what he's going to do, but you can see the difference, right? Yeah. Like Mary is saying, okay, how's this going to happen? Uh, where she believes, but she's just curious about <laughs> how is it going to happen. Yeah. Uh, whereas Zachariah is asking for a sign, and so in that moment, we see clearly like that Zachariah has has sinned in that moment because it's it's kind of the doubt and demanding of God something which he doesn't he shouldn't have to give. Yep. Um, no, so great points. 
Uh, so, boy, longer episode this week. But that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, as a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Hey, thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.